Hi superfans, Alan here. Before we get into this month's episode, I'd like to take a moment to wish the sincerest of well wishes to a good friend of the podcast, Mr. Neil Jackson. I met Neil way back in 2011 while playing DC Universe Online and we became fast friends. We've stayed in contact over the years and Neil recently reached out to me with some very kind and heartfelt words about the podcast and about how much he's enjoying it, despite the fact that he's not the biggest Superman fan out there. Unfortunately, Neil, like so many of our loved ones, is fighting the good fight against cancer right now. I just want to wish Neil the very best from both Rob and I here at All Star Superfan, as well as from our listeners and our supporters. Neil, I have no doubt that you're going to kick this thing's ass and come back stronger than ever. You've got this, mate. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we know what's happening. We talk, we talk, Superman, and we cover everything. Hello, superfans. Welcome back to a very special episode of All Star Superfan, the podcast that explores the full 80 plus year legacy of the Man of Steel in all of his various incarnations. I'm Alan Burke, and I am joined, as always, by the doomsday of Dublin himself. Mr. Rob O'Connor. Hi, Rob. That's my best doomsday. He's not very verbose. Rob, I don't want to waste a minute of time with our guest tonight, so let's get straight into it. He is a legendary American comic book writer and artist whose work helped to define the 90s era of Superman. He is probably best known for his work on the DC comic book storyline, The Death of Superman, and for creating iconic characters such as Doomsday, Hank Henshaw, and Booster Gold. At Marvel, he worked on series such as Captain America, The Sensational Spider-Man, and was the writer on Thor for seven years. I would like to extend a very warm Irish welcome to Mr. Dan Jurgens. Thank you. It's great to be here. We've been trying to do this for a long time, so I'm glad we were finally able to do it. It is. It's so great to have you on, and thanks again for taking time out of your busy day to uh, to chat with us and to uh, chat with our listeners. I know you're you're very busy. You've got a very special book coming up shortly with the, the 30th anniversary special of the death of Superman that we're all looking forward to see. We can't wait to see it. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, we finally actually just got it all finished uh, just a matter of days ago. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for people. Um, I, I think it takes us back to a very uh, fun time that people remember fondly. And for people who weren't there then, we also have some new stuff in it as well. So it's a very nice package. I can't wait. I already have my order in with uh, Dublin City Comics and Collectibles here in Ireland. And I, I, I know that Rob probably does too. Um, just to talk in general terms about your career first, and before we get into works like Death of Superman, whenever I think of art from the 60s, it's always Jack Kirby that comes to mind. For the 70s, it's Neil Adams. For the 80s, it's George Perez. And whenever I think about the 90s era of comic books and the 90s era of Superman, it's always your incredible work that springs to mind. Would you agree that your your work has come to kind of define that era of uh, of comic books? Um, that's that, that's a bit hard for me to say, because I, I think that kind of analysis is best left to those who are on the outside. Um, in, and by outside, I mean readers. I, I think that I, I do know that um, through the 90s, especially, I was fortunate enough to work on some very big, very high visibility projects, mostly at DC, but also at Marvel. And 
And uh, so I, I think there's probably something to what you said, but ultimately that's not my call to make. You're in a very unique situation. You're both a writer and an artist. Does having kind of practical experience as both a writer and an artist make the process of creating comics that bit easier because you understand both aspects so well compared to someone who just writes or, 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 or does art solely? I don't know if I would quite use the word easier, um, but but I do think what it means is, and this is whether I'm just working with an editor, whether I'm working with a, a writer that I'm drawing their story for, or whether I am working with uh, an artist that I am writing for, I think I am able to have a really thorough and complete dialogue about what it is we're trying to do that most creators who only do one aspect of the work can't have. Um, and, and I think I'm able to kind of analyze whether it's a, a story or a piece of art or something in, in a way that a lot of people can't. And I feel very fortunate in that way. Um, when I go back to when I first started at DC Comics, you know, there were a number of artists on staff in an editorial capacity so that we could kind of grow up in that system where we could all have those conversations. So Dick Giordano was there, Joe Orlando was there, Joe Kubert was there. A lot of people may not remember it, but, you know, Ross Andrew, uh, who was my early editor on The Warlord, was there on staff, as was Ernie Cologne, who was a longtime artist. And, and I think as an industry, we've kind of lost something by not having that now. Um, so I, I do think, in a way, it's a skill that I wish I could see more often, which is... Um, people who are both writing and drawing their own material. On, on that, actually, Dan, just on the topic of collaboration, you mentioned some great names there. One of the things that I, and, and I think a lot of people really love about that early 90s era of Superman comics is that they were so interconnected. And uh, that, that, that uh, mm -hmm. the Superman Doomsday animated movie uh, I, I, I've fairly different thoughts on the movie itself, but there's that wonderful documentary that came with it. And it has all this footage of you and your colleagues at the time you know, sitting around a room, almost like the Simpsons writer's room kind of thing. And you have this big whiteboard and you're, you know, you're crossing lines between different story arcs. But then quite separately, when you came back to do Superman Rebirth, it was largely your own baby. C can you talk about the the kind of contrast between the two styles? Is, is there one you prefer? Do you prefer just doing your own thing or do you like kind of sitting in that maelstrom? <laughs> Well, it's like, you know, Rob, it's like so many things in life that everything has its advantages and disadvantages, right? And and one of the nice things about doing the big expansive stories uh, as part of a larger group like we did in the 90s was that we could really um, expand a storyline in a way that you can't unless you are connected with other other books and creators, you know, and and so we were able to take something like the death of Superman, run it across four books, almost making it a weekly comic book for all intents and purposes, and carry out a storyline that lasted really about a year and that people really, really enjoyed. By the same token, when I did the Superman, Lois and Clark miniseries, it kind of brought the classic Superman, if you will, back into the DC universe uh, and gave them John Kent. Um, it was nice to be able to tell something that was more focused and ended up, you know, coming together as a nice trade paperback um, that I did with Lee Weeks on art. And then later, 
when we did the rebirth stuff, you know, we were sort of a little bit in between because we also had uh, Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason doing the Superman book. And we, we crossed over some a little bit and we're certainly reflecting the sensibility of each other and what we were trying to accomplish with, with Superman. So um, I think the idea is to hit it mm. somewhere in the middle that some to, to find the format that allows you to tell a very, very big story. Um, but at the same time, then be able to pull back a little bit and tell stories about these characters as individuals that are just, you know, perhaps a 20 page story with a beginning, middle and an end, something like that. And was following John Byrne's initial Man of Steel run, you know, the post uh, Christ on Infinite Earths, was that advantageous for writers and artists who followed that due to the fact that there was almost kind of a blank slate on which to work that you didn't have to work with years of continuity and decades of of backstory and anything that you kind of had you know maybe a couple of months or a couple of years of worth of worth of stories to kind of build from yeah definitely and 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 i think but there again it's not quite I would phrase it just a little bit differently, Alan, and and because I think it's not so much that it was a blank slate, but it was more that it was a cleaned up slate that that John had gone in and I thought did a fabulous job in, in kind of re-envisioning Superman and, and stripping off a, a lot of the stuff that had accumulated over the years and in some cases gotten quite silly. I also thought he did a couple of tremendous things Um one of which was bringing back Clark Kent's parents. Yeah. With that, it helped to humanize Clark more. And once you talk about a more human Clark, it makes, I think, Superman a little more relatable. So I, I thought that was very nice to have, as well as getting back to the idea of, um, and I love this phrase about Superman, this descriptive phrase, the last son of Krypton. Um, I think there is, I think Superman works best when that is in effect. And there is almost this sense of loneliness about him that 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 then helps to explain why it is that he is so linked to mankind, to earth and to human beings in general, because that's really who he is. And and I think the more super characters you add around Superman, the more diluted he becomes. And then we lose that, that sense of loneliness. And I really do believe that's, that's empirical to the character and, and a very necessary part of, of who he is. Did you, did you ever face any backlash with that philosophy though? Because I know you, your version of Supergirl, for example, was, was the matrix. And yeah. General Zod. I, I think General Zod came in a little bit later, but, but no, there was, sorry, I beg your pardon. There was a General Zod in your comics as well. And um, was that ever something that, you know, older fans took issue with that, that these kind of classic elements couldn't feature? Oh, definitely. And, you know, to, to be candid, um, I think even, you know, we did, so we had a character called Matrix that was sort of yeah. like a lump of protoplasm that, that essentially functioned as Supergirl. And I'm not sure that was the right answer either. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we batted 1000, no one does. Um, what I am saying, though, is that overall, we tried to follow that as a sensibility. And if as part of that sensibility, there would have been a way to add a, a Supergirl character later who perhaps was his cousin from Krypton or something close to that. You know, the, the cousin angle is a little bit close, but I can see why they did it. Um, 
that I think is necessary as well. It just, we could have waited longer. And as I said, I'm just not sure the matrix solution was exactly the right mm-hmm. one. Yes, we got some pushback from longtime fans, but we also got, you know, plenty of people who liked it. And that's what you find in comics is so often uh, for people, if that's what they read when they were 11 years old, that's what they're going to love. So there is that. I really like Matrix because it's. I read it when I was eight years old. So, <laughs> um, just to to speak to what you said about the Kens, I know that like Rob and I grew up in the year of Superman of of your Superman uh, books from the nineties and the Lois and Clark show, which featured Eddie Jones and Kay Callan as as the Kens, and it, it's always felt a lot warmer to us. I know when the Kens are gone, it it's it's very cold for Superman, and it's it's very difficult for him. He he doesn't really have anybody to bounce back off those issues where he would go back to the Kent farm and talk to the Kens and confide in them and seek their guidance and their wisdom. Uh, it just always led to a, a, a fuller, more rounded character, I thought. I certainly feel that way as well. Um, and, and and again, it, the it, it gives him, I always felt, a level of humanity that I think yeah. is really, really important um, because, you know, when you have the level of power, that Superman has. I think that that need and want for him to be human is is good for people to understand and good to explain. And when it's all set up in a contextual story way, I think that's very important. So I, I think what what John did in in Man of Steel, which set all of that up, really was great. And and it it certainly provided us with. Um, as I said, kind of the, the that cleaned up sort of universe to work in rather than the one that that had accumulated so many different aspects of of weight um, yeah. that were hard to understand. And as I said, and at some point where Superman had just gotten, I thought, terribly silly. Yeah. Does the fact that that 90s era, that kind of triangle era of Superman comics has kind of become this modern golden age of Superman now, does that surprise you after after all these years? I th- yes, it does. Um, and, and a lot of it is because when you're in the middle of working in something like that, it's hard to step back and appreciate it for what it was. Um, you know, and and a lot of it is the pressure of getting a book out especially when you're writing and drawing it on a monthly basis is just so heavy and so intense that you never, ever, at least I don't, and I don't think anybody really does find yourself all of a sudden, you know, you're drawing page 17 panel three, and you don't just lean back and go, huh, I wonder what people will think of this in 30 years. It, it never occurred to us. And, and a lot of it is um, because especially prior to doing the death of Superman, you know, it was relatively rare for our work for any of us to, across the industry to have our work reprinted. You know, when when I first started working in the um, early 80s, you know, DC would put out these old digest editions and it would be kind of at the end of every year and it would say the year's best stories. And it would be like 75 cents and there would be six stories in it. And uh, I know I had done a Legion story, Legion of Superhero story written by Paul Levitz that got reprinted. I was like, wow, I actually did something that got to come out and get printed twice. And, and so this idea that creators all recognize now that your work is taken and collected and printed in hardcover or softcover or something 
never mind omnibus editions. We never thought of that. It was it was pretty much inconceivable. So certainly we weren't going to say, oh yeah, and what is someone going to someone going to think 20, 30 years from now when it's on their bookshelf in a hardcover book? Wasn't part of the thought process. I I, I want to ask you about some of your iconic characters in a moment, Dan. But there's one character in in particular that always stands out to me when I go back to the death of Superman. And if I'm not mistaken, he was created by you. I'm sure there was a collaborative process there. It's Mitch Anderson. Now, for oh. anyone for anyone who doesn't know who Mitch Anderson is, it, it, well, it's well, you know, basically there's this, for want of a better word, he's a bit of a shitty kid, right? He's he wears a backwards baseball cap, he rides a skateboard, and he hates Superman, and uh, he's always you know complaining about how Superman's a dweeb and all this kind of stuff. And there's this really beautiful pivotal moment, um, midway through the death of Superman arc, where Superman has to choose between easily dispatching uh, Doomsday or saving Mitch Anderson and his family. And of course he goes back and saves him. And it's just, it's quintessential Superman. I'd absolutely adore that moment. And then we follow Mitch throughout the world without a Superman as, as I knew it to be called, because that was the name of the trade paperback at the time. And he is one of the first people to mourn Superman. He goes in the pouring rain, he sits down at the statue. I absolutely love that character. And for me, he kind of embodies everyone who you know, all these fans out there who don't appreciate Superman, all these people who say he's old fashioned, he's outdated, all this kind of stuff. I just wanted to ask you, what, what was your kind of thought process going into him? Where did he come from? Was was that the idea or what, how did he gestate? Oh, you you nailed it. Uh, you nailed it, Rob. I mean, you get the ball star of the day. Um, it's really funny you ask about this. So we'll, we'll get into a little surprise uh, here later, but um at that time, we had the phrase Marvel zombies. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, Marvel zombies were, were the, the kids, mostly kids, who would go into the comic store. And it's just like if Marvel printed it, they bought it. You take the phone book, put Marvel's logo on it, and they'll buy it. And, they, and, and we we lovingly, lovingly referred to them as Marvel zombies because they wanted to buy every single Marvel comic there was. And I couldn't have a character sit and say, gee, Superman is a dweeb. I like Wolverine better. So I actually had created Mitch Anderson to kind of represent that attitude. And he re refers in the story to actually Guy Gardner yes. um, rather than, than, you know, Wolverine or somebody and says, you know, Guy Gardner is cool because he was the most acerbic sort of critical character DC had at that point. Um, but yeah, he was created to represent that cynicism that was out there about Superman, 100%. So by, by getting him into the story and then being able to see how Superman's sacrifice even kind of converts him, the whole thing was totally there, or Mitch was totally there to represent that level of cynicism that we saw in comics of, oh, who cares about Superman? He's the big blue boy scout, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think he worked out very, very well. So now we'll get into a little bit of the surprise. Um, <clears throat> so we have the 30th anniversary Death of Superman special that is going to be out in uh, early November. The way the whole story starts out is that in Metropolis, it is the anniversary of the day that Superman died, which is even notable for the city of Metropolis. And so we're, we're in a school room and, and this is, we don't say exactly when this takes place. It's a flashback to when young John Kent was first going to school in Metropolis after they moved in from the farm. Uh, 
And um, teacher says, I have invited someone to come in who's going to talk about Superman's sacrifice, the death of Superman, and what it meant to all of us. And she introduces Mitch Anderson Amazing. to the class. <laughs> and now he is now an adult. And, and he walks into the classroom. He's got the black armband on. And that's what gets us into the story. So it's very much a part of, um, I think, an important part of what we did 30 years ago, because again, of that attitude. I'm sorry, that was a long, long answer. No, that's an amazing answer. Taking what you said there into account, uh, and I know, and we've, we we discussed it with um, uh, with Mark Wade before, um, the perception of Superman back in, in those days, in the 90s, you know, and we all hear the, this kind of criticism of the character where people say, oh, Superman is hard to write. Did you ever find that yourself throughout your years of writing for Superman? No. No. And why do you think people perceive it that way? Because I think they see, if you only see Superman in terms of his superpowers and trying to come up with that villain that's going to equate those powers, you're going to get stuck. Um, Superman is so much more well-rounded and representative than that. I think part of it is, you referenced this with, um, Mitch Anderson a little bit is confronting Superman with a choice. What 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 is the difficult choice that Superman faces in this story? What is the obstacle when combined with that choice? What happens if, if to Superman in terms of his personal life if he follows through with Course A in that story? So I I think that that Clark Kent as a character, um, the way he was raised um, with Lois Lane, you know, and, and all that goes along with it, the amount of depth that is there. I know I, I have never found the character hard to write. That doesn't mean, again, that I was successful in every single story I did. It just means that I have never understood that comment. Um, and to that person, I should probably say, well, then you probably shouldn't try to write Superman. Uh, when you sit down to a blank page, knowing that you have 28, I think it's 28 panels to depict what will be one of the most read, if not the most read comic book of all time. Is that a different kind of pressure or was Superman 75 just kind of another story for you? Or did you have to kind of put that out of your head when you when you were sitting down to to to, to do that book? No, by the time I was working on it, at that point, we 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 didn't know it was going to be as big as it was, certainly. But by the time I was actually writing and drawing the story, we knew we were going to have a lot of eyeballs on that story. And what what I realized is um, if if one looks at it only in terms of this, so so this is sort of like a, a similar sort of comment to the one you just asked about that Superman is is hard to write the the flip side of a, uh, an issue with just splash pages is well that'll be easy to draw you only have to come up with 28 panels and it's actually that is not it at all because the the truth of the matter is you realize you're doing a story and you only have 28 illustrations to be able to convey the actual story itself now if if i would have looked at it as gee, every page is just going to be this luscious sort of um, uh, typical Superman fighting doomsday 
you know, blockbuster sort of panel, it would have been easy. But to actually tell the story where we want to see the city and we move the camera up in the sky into a helicopter, for example, or for a wider expansive shot of the city and we cut across, it's actually hard to pick out the 28 to 30 visuals yeah. um, you want to show because the reader is left to have to fill that in with his imagination. So from a storytelling standpoint, mm. what I had done is I had thumbnailed out the book many, many times and each page probably had five or six different scenes and, and just little stick figures all broken out. And then I'd go through and I'd pick out, okay, these are the ones that I think work best. And then I'd wait, no, those aren't. That, then I got to trade one out on page 17 and another one on page 24. And it took a long time to really come up with those final um, scenes that I wanted to show in the book. And one of my greatest, I was just, just while you were speaking there, I, I remember clearly one of my greatest memories of reading comics as a kid was reading Superman 75. I remember I was nine years old sitting my sitting in my room and I was reading the splash pages that the, the panels, you know, get fewer and fewer and the borders disappear and everything. And I remember sitting down and looking around and like there was birds outside and the, the sun was shining and you could hear people, neighbors. And I was like, does nobody realize that Superman is legitimately about to die in this comic book. Nobody seems to know what's what's going on. So the effect <laughs> that that book had on me as a kid, and I'm sure on so many other readers, uh, has stayed with me for the last 30 years. It's just been, it, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, work. Uh, it's just brilliant. Thank you. If, you. if you can believe it, Dan, the very first trade paperback I ever read and owned was, in fact, World Without a Superman, which is, looking back is a very strange one to start with you know he's he's dead and buried and this is the world reacting to that but i just found it so engrossing and it just drew me into that world straight away and yeah the same thing it did it just it, it blew me away the whole thing you know and it really in a strange way it it, it is a great entry point for that world you know it, it, you're introduced to gangbuster and cat grant and all these different things galaxy broadcasting and all, all these different and cadmus labs of course Paul Westlake, all these different characters, you know. Um, so yeah, I, we've mentioned a few times on on the on the podcast that that era, uh, and 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 really the death of Saga is kind of the linchpin yeah. of the whole era. But it, it's it's kind of my favorite uh, era of Superman comics, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Yeah, and you know, um, just so just as an aside, Rob, when we planned out the death of story, we had first talked about you know doing death of Superman, and then the question was why. And so we then started to work on, before we even fully decided to do Death of Superman, we started to talk about what would become the world without a Superman storyline, Funeral for a Friend. And, and we really got so into breaking all of that out and how do the characters react with no Superman that we had a lot of that fleshed out and then said, well, now we got to go back and figure out how does Superman die? So we kind of plotted that out in the same order you probably ended up reading it. That must have been very surreal for you and the other members of the team who were working on the books at the time to see this strange kind of parallel between what was happening in the books with the mourning of Superman and the loss of Superman and then the very real world reaction, which was so similar as if Superman was a real person who, who had legitimately died. It must have been very surreal to see your work kind of affect 
people and you know it was in the media it was all over the papers i remember being on the news here in ireland which was crazy because we were so kind of cut off from the us and everything at the time and media wise and stuff it must have been kind of like being a beetle or something was it <laughs> well maybe a little bit within the world of comics but um i i have always said you know one of the things we were fortunate with that so once we got into these stories and, and we're talking about a world with no Superman and what does that mean to the characters of the DC universe, they have columnists, you know, throughout the United States and obviously, you know, uh, in Europe, you know, writing pieces that said, what does it say about us that we no longer have <clears throat> Superman? It meant that we, you know, had reality and fiction and they just kind of did that and the gears meshed. And so it was tremendously gratifying to see, you know, national columnists, columnists write an opinion piece about that, just as we had those comics coming out. And it meant, it really didn't mean that we were on the right track. That's, and as I think that's what all of us as creators sort of look for in a way is that verification that we're on the right track. That, that we have nailed something and gotten it right. on the subject of media coverage and hype and, and and everything that was going on at the time dan i i do have to bring up the fact that this is a first for our podcast in that you are the first person we've had on the show who has actually appeared on lois and clark the new adventures of superman uh, oh. so i was wondering <laughs> can you can you talk us through what happened there and how it came about and everything else uh yeah so um I believe that was so uh, on that trip, you know, we had done death of and everything else. And uh, um, we were doing the return at that time. Um, I believe on that trip it was also linked to when we all were out in San Diego uh, for Comic-Con and also made a side trip to LA. And when I say we, it meant the entire creative team and they were there, you know, filming the show and they were saying at the same time, you know, as long as you guys are going to be here, we're going to be shooting this scene that is outside on the street of Metropolis in front of the mocked up Daily Planet where Superman flies in and, and comes in for a landing. So they brought us all out. They interspersed us with the crowd. And so the camera could sweep through and catch us all turning and pointing up in the sky and things like that, uh, reacting to Superman as, as he came in from flight. And it was a lot of fun. Um because we were able to meet Dean Kane and Terry Hatcher and the production team, you know, behind the series and, and get to see what it was they were trying to do and accomplish. And we all had a great time doing it. Um, and at, at, and not only that, but previously, uh, a couple of years previously, before Death Of, there was a Superboy TV show that was in. We we talk about we talk about that uh, podcast. We interviewed uh, James uh, James De about writing some of those episodes. Oh, okay. And we cover uh, maybe too much. We've spoken <laughs> about that show, but we uh, we love that okay. show. We love that well, show too. There's an episode where John Bogdanov and I are dressed up in white painters uh, suits, like, and we're in notice. a hallway as painters. And as the people go by and the camera goes by, we're standing there shaking our brushes at each other in mock argument. Uh, so we're in one of those as well. So yeah, that was that was a fun show too. And it had some really amazing uh, high points. I thought, you know, like Michael J. Pollard is Mick Jazz yeah. Pitalik. You can't go wrong. Yeah. 
I I always mention the episode where Superboy and Lex Luthor are trapped in a mine and just have to talk about their feelings for 28 minutes. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Lex Luthor stories ever. Uh, did, did you actually watch the We Grew Up on the Lois and Clark show? Did you actually watch? Did you like that show? Was it because it's 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 a strange me and Rob have spoken about it a good a, a good bit and kind of like the Superboy show. It's kind of been forgotten a little bit over time. It doesn't get kind of get the recognition. There was never any merchandise release for it. Um, you don't really see um, like the, the the stars of it appearing on things like the the Christ and Infinite Earth special and stuff like that. I was just, did you like that show back at the time? I did. Um, I thought that in the context of, you know, and I think that's what you have to recognize is sort of was the, what was the context of the time? What was the potential for special effects and things like that, which were so much more difficult mm. um, than even what they had by the time they got around to doing Smallville, that um, I thought it had some, some real high points to it. Uh, I thought it misfired on some other things like all fiction does. Um, mm. I, I'm not being critical at all. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe it's time will come back in terms of the way it's appreciated. It was, I thought it was nice in part because it did have other characters in it, like Cat Grant, you know, who was who was prominent in the in the series. I thought, I thought they had a great Perry White, um, you know, and never mind the, the two stars as as Clark and Lois. So, I who were also I think just fine for what that was trying to be at that time, and I thought it did well. Generally, generally, where do you land on the different uh, other media versions of, of Superman, Dan? Is, is, do you have a favorite and, you know, do, do you have a least favorite or anything like that? Well, for me, um, I, I am so motivated by uh, the, the Christopher Reeve in the first Superman movie. Um, and a lot of that was just going into a theater, not knowing what to expect. And, and again, this is the context of the time, right? It's hard to look at it this way now, but when those credits came on screen and it, it was just the, the three-dimensional credits coming forward in, with a sense of uh, special effects that, you know, I had never seen anything like that before. And it just totally blew me away as I think it did uh, a lot of uh, people. And, and Christopher Reeve, I thought, absolutely nailed it. I, I thought he was perfect as Superman. Um, I would also say by the same token, I think Henry Cavill is an absolutely spectacular Superman as well, that, that he has a sense of presence to him. And I think this is what always has to be understood, whether you're drawing the character or trying to portray the character. That when, when I draw Superman, I always want him to have a sense of presence in the room. Um, within the panel in terms of his body language, how other characters look at him and react to him, et cetera. And I think Christopher Reeve was able to capture that on film. And I think Henry Cavill does as well. And, and I think that is so integral and it's a hard thing to explain. And I don't know how casting directors necessarily look for it, but that sense of presence um, that, that, and it's very intangible, but I know it when I see it, I think is critical. I, I did notice quite a few little references to uh, to, to your work in some of the more recent uh, the, 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 uh, the Zack Snyder movies. Was there any one thing that stood out to you that you were really appreciative that they that that, that, that they took that? that I, I feel like the, um, the 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 burial in Smallville, especially in Batman v Superman, um, 
myself and Alan have, we're not the biggest fans of, of, of that era, putting it mildly, but I do really, really like that idea that everyone in Smallville knows that he's Superman and they have this really kind of intimate burial for him while the, while the big glitzy, glossy, celebrity-filled burial is happening in Metropolis. It felt like that was a tip of the hat to what you did. Did, did you pick up on any of that? I, I did. So, you know, when you're in the theater seeing that for the first time, there are different reactions you, you sort of have to it. And um, one is it's just, oh, they're using your story material. They're using your characters. Uh, here's Doomsday on screen. But then there is also the idea of kind of replicating panels that you dreamed up and drew. And it kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the specific scenes from Superman 75. And so once Superman has died in the film and Lois is holding him, which is so similar to what we had in the books, you, you again, you get that, that sense of support and verification in that it uses not just your story material, but the visual material as well. So you're, you're kind of ratified as both writer and artist at that point. It's a, it's a special feeling. What was it like seeing Doomsday in live action on a big movie screen 25 years later, or 20, you know, 22 years later after, you know, putting him to to page and him coming from your, from somewhere in your mind? Yeah, I, I thought it, you know, I got a real charge out of it and it, it was fun to see, um, you know, it was a little bit different. Now, obviously they had to streamline the origin uh, to get it all to work out, but it's still, it was fun and it was great to see and part of that is because if you go back to some of the earlier efforts or or like the the tim burton effort they were going to be doing a doomsday that was way different so you know to to or it looked like that for a time so for them to try and be you know pretty close to what we did and everything um because everything gets translated a little bit it seems when it winds up on film and and they hit about 90 percent of it mm-hmm. and that's pretty damn good these days to, to bring us back to comics, uh, Dan, and I know we don't have too much longer, um, we, we can't not mention the fact that we are big fans of John Kent, um, and you were instrumental in his creation as well. Um, I wonder, could you talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, his, his creation, what he has become, because he is quite a different character now to when, when you were initially writing him. Uh, and then I want to ask you a little bit about uh, the, the, the new TV show that he, that he kind of sort of appears in. Uh, so can you can you talk a little bit about that? You know, they were trying to come up with uh, some product and everything to cover the physical reality of you're going to have an entire office shut down and move across country. And, and you know, part of that was a project called Convergence and this idea that we were going to find different DC characters off on different worlds and things like that. And the one that I was going to be dealing with um, had what we would have said, you know, was the older version, the 90s version of Clovis and Clark off on a world um, where Superman, Clark does not have powers. And, you know, what would their story be? What would their future be? And we talked about some different possibilities. And, you know, I went to um, uh, Dan DiDio, and this was also when I was working on a, a weekly series called Future's End with Brian Azzarello, uh, Jeff Lemire, and Keith Giffen as my as our other writers. And we were talking about different ideas. I 
went to Dan. I said, so if Willis and Clark have a baby, what if, and I, I can't tell you what it becomes yet. I don't know, but they have this infant boy, John Kent. And after he is born, because all these worlds were supposed to collapse and die, they take this infant, the Lois and Clark we know, we put him in a rocket, they put him in a rocket ship because Clark doesn't have powers and they launch him into space as their world dies. And I said, that's the future. I don't know what we do with that, but that gives us something to build on, you know, down the road. And, and Dan liked that idea. We went through different concepts of what would happen there and that changed, but ultimately what it turned into was that Superman coming back to be DC's Superman again. And that's when we did uh, the Lois and Clark miniseries. We found out they were living on a farm in California on our world where that Superman was quietly observing and getting involved with events as they quietly raised their son, John. And, and I think that what John in a lot of that context came to mean is somewhat similar to what Clark's parents served as for us, which is it helps to humanize the character. I also think that it, it served as a wonderful counterpoint to Batman because by then we had had Damien for a couple of years. And in reality, you know, Batman was sort of a, I won't say deadbeat dad, but he was certainly a non-present father because he didn't know about Damien, which I guess means he's not the world's greatest detective. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a cheap shot. Um, but 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 seeing the way Lois and Clark raise John, I think, again, it helps to humanize Superman. It brings him closer to us. And so I think he's been, uh, I saw him as a character of importance. And I think he is actually, you know, doubled down on that um, over time. Uh, I don't know that I would have aged him because I wish the world could have experienced young John longer. Yeah. You know, I think the super son stuff was incredibly popular, you know, and, and so, um, but I think he's been, I would like to think that he has been an important addition to the Superman mythos. Is it hard when you create a character like that? And then obviously, you know, your time comes to an end, someone else takes on that character, and then they do something with that character that you don't necessarily agree with. Is that a tough thing? Or is it just part of the of the industry that you get used to over time or it's both um it, it it is a tough thing because and i think peter tomasi would say the same thing we had more stories to tell we we had a particular direction that we wanted to go uh at the same time it is part of the industry and and i think the idea is uh to be successful in it you kind of have to learn to negotiate that and and find a way to make it work, uh, recognize when it doesn't work and walk away, but then find a way, uh, if you can, to make it work and have it still work out for you. And uh, I think that's why, you know, even with the looming 30th anniversary, Death of Superman special, John, who's on the cover, I mean, everybody knows he's in the story, is such an important part of that, that story because his parents never bothered to tell him that his father died and came back from the dead, which for a 10-year-old kid is a pretty freaky thing to find out about. Looking back at your career when it comes to Superman, I mean, you stand in a very unique kind of position in that you've had a hand in almost every major tentpole in the character's life. I mean, you you 
you were involved in his death, his resurrection, his marriage to Lois Lane, the birth of his son then, you know, 20 years later. That must be a very surreal kind of a position to find yourself in for a character that's 80 plus years old. I try to avoid looking back and kind of measuring it that way because I think that's what I do when I decide to hang, when I decide to put away the pencil and keyboard and hang it up, you know, and and I'm not there yet. Uh, but I do recognize that. I, I recognize that, you know, I, I've been in this business over 40 years, uh, writing and drawing mostly at DC. And I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of different types of projects and a lot of different work. I think if people were to start to chart it, you know, there are these uh, sites out there that follow the amount of work people have done in terms of here are the ranks of writers who have done this many pages or stories and artists who have done this many. Uh, I think in terms of a writer artist, I must be at about the top because I don't think many people have done both uh, to the degree that I have. And so it, it, has, been, um, it has been fun. And, and continues to be fun. And it is, you know, like I said, I try not to dwell on the past. I try not to look back, but at the same time, sometimes you can't help but think of it. And, and especially now when you do something like a special project that is a callback to something that you did 30 years ago, which is really a long time. And in comics, it's even longer than a long time. So, yeah. I was just wondering, I was reading through some of your back catalog there over the last couple of weeks. I was just wondering, um, considering everything that happened kind of, you know, 2011, the new 52 and then convergence and everything after after it. How difficult was that new 52 period for you when you were involved in that? Well, you know, it was, I think it was difficult for everybody. And, and a lot of it was because I think um, there was a lack of clarity. And, you know, one of the things I would ask, because I was uh, drawing Green Arrow at the time uh, while writing uh, a Justice League book, and I'd say, okay, so as I work on Green Arrow, I need to know one thing. Uh, if Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen had their road trip, you know, with the famous Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff. And I, if I asked five different people, three would say yes, two would say no. And, and that's the kind of thing I mean. And so because of that, I think I lack context. If I lack context, the readers lack context and, and they don't know how the things fit. And so... Um, when they when they redid Superman, you know, you had um, um, Grant Morrison doing action comics, but we were seeing Superman as a very young adult just moving to Metropolis, and it was great. At the same time, George Perez was kind of writing and drawing a more modern version of Superman or older uh, contemporary version, and he got frustrated and left. And they asked uh, me to come in, and, and along with Keith Giffen. And I talked to George and, and I said, well, what is the difficulty? I mean, why aren't you happy doing Superman? He said, because to me, this isn't Superman because they won't let me do Superman as I see it. And I kind of ran into the same obstacle um, that I, I think too often in comics, there is this notion that in order to make things seem new and modern and all that stuff, they throw the baby out with the bathwater and they change too much in a character. And if you change too much, the character isn't the character anymore. So if, if we see Lois, you know, who showed up in Action Comics number one in 1938, just like Superman and Clark did, um, 
and and she's taking up with some schmuck of a guy. Well, that doesn't seem like Lois. I mean, Lois doesn't have to be with Clark necessarily, but she's not going to take up with a loser like that. She has more going for her. You know, it's that kind of thing. And and even as I worked on it, I never knew had Superman fought Doomsday yet or not. I I and I'd ask and I'd get different answers. And so I think the whole idea was good in a lot of ways, but I don't think readers understood how all these pieces fit together. And a universe of characters depends on this sense of context. We have to know how the puzzle pieces fit together. You can do new, but things still have to fit, right? We have to know how they relate to one another, and we didn't have that. Yeah. You you mentioned two names there um, in, in, when you were answering that question, um, both Neil and, and George. Sadly, we've lost uh, both of them in the last year. I, I'm not sure if you've ever yeah. worked, if you ever worked with Neil, but I, I know you worked with George. What was that like? Um, well, first of all, you know, I did not ever get to work with Neil and I, and I would have loved to. The closest I ever got is he did a Thor cover when I was doing Thor. I have tremendous admiration and respect for both both those yeah. guys. Neil, because as a reader, he's the first one, the first artist that really showed me that there was an individual doing these stories. That before that, I kind of saw comics more like something that came off a machine somehow. But Neil's stuff was so different. I thought, well, why is this different? And then I'd really start to see his style on another cover and figure, well, this is, these are, these belong together. They all look like they're drawn by the same guy. You know, and it just spoke to me immediately that way. Uh, I think Neil was 70s DC, period. Um, what he did for the company during the 70s, I think is remarkable. I think George did that for DC visually in the 80s, that Neil was 1970s DC, George was 1980s. Uh, love them both. George, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, in a couple of capacities. I He inked a number of stories that I drew, whether it was Teen Titans or Green Arrow, um, even an issue with Superman. And at the same time, uh, I drew uh, some stuff that George wrote because originally when I came on Superman, he was the writer on Adventures of Superman. So uh, I was definitely blessed to be able to work with him in several different capacities. And, you know, we missed them both. Yeah. Absolutely. I know Rob will absolutely string me up if uh, we, if he doesn't get some booster goal questions in before we go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That was my very next question, Dan. Um, it's we, we have had one live action appearance of booster gold. Uh, can you tell me what you thought yeah. of that, first of all? Oh, that was great fun. You know, um, Jeff, well, Jeff Johns actually wrote that episode of Smallville. And uh, so, you know, throughout it, he, he was sending me information on it. And here's some pictures. Here's what the costume is going to look like uh, that the costume designers came up with and everything. I thought it was great. And what I really liked was, you know, Booster turning to the Campbell or to the camera. It's a little glint on the teeth that they added. And, you know, the 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 dancing girls on stage and everything. I thought uh, I thought that was great fun and definitely represented the character. And uh you know, the other part of it is, you know, at one time he had been optioned as a TV series on the Sci-Fi Network. Um, and some of those same people put together a, a very nice pilot. They, they didn't film it. They just wrote the script, never got filmed, unfortunately, but it was on the money. And then a couple of years ago, went into development as a movie. And once again, got to the script stage, uh, the script stage, which was a lot of fun. It was a great script. But by the time that was done, 
everything with the DC movie world started to turn in flux. So unfortunately, it hasn't worked out. Brewster does show up in another live action appearance at the very last episode of Legends of the DCU. And I, I as I have told many friends, there is nothing more Booster Gold than getting to be on the last episode of a series with the idea that you'll be a main player going yeah. forward. <laughs> the series gets canceled. It's like the most Booster Gold thing ever. My, my, my next question was, what is your dream? Well, you've kind of semi-answered it, but if, if you could uh, cast Booster Gold uh, for a live action movie or TV show, or what would that movie be and who would the actor be? Uh, I, I used to say um, many years ago that I thought actually that Justin Timberlake would be a perfect booster goal. Interesting. He had the height, he had the physical stature, he had the charm where, you know, he could just smile at the camera and just have everybody go, oh, you know, stuff like that, which I think is so important. Um, there are a couple of people out there now that, you know, are considerably younger who can kind of hit that point. Uh I hesitate to name them because you never know if, you know, you don't want the internet to get carried away with itself. So, but the, the it, it's sort of like, you know, if we were to go back 10, 15 years, Timberlake sort of embodied the qualities that I think would have been perfect for a live action booster. And like I said, it's that easy, casual smile that no matter how bad you screw up, you kind of look at the camera and you smile Everybody goes, oh, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> you know, and which is what Booster has to have. That um, if the plane is coming in for a crash, Superman can catch it and bring it down at the airport. Booster is going to take it and it's going to wobble. And because he's calling CNN to come film it while he does it, and the wings are going to clip a couple of buildings and cause more destruction, he'll get it on the ground, but it's going to be a clumsy process. Uh, so when he finally does that, you know, it's like, okay, you got it done. It just, you know, was harder than it should be. You know, that kind of thing. Would I be wrong in saying, I, I could be wrong here. Your first time working on kind of Superman was on Booster Gold, wasn't it? He appeared on in a Booster Gold book that you were working on. Yeah, so actually, um, that is true. So um, I had written and drawn, or I had written, so we're talking Booster Gold Volume 1. I had written... The, the script. And at that time, it was supposed to be in the future, Booster was working in the Superman Museum and, and stole stuff and went back. And in that story, goes to the Fortress of Solitude where he meets Superman and all this other stuff. And a phone rang one day and said, we can't do that story. Um, John Byrne just signed the contract. He's coming to redo Superman. So you need to rework that story. And, and we did rework the visuals. But if you really follow the timeline of Crisis on Infinite Earths and everything happens, that's really kind of the first appearance of the pro-Crisis Superman. And yeah, that's when I probably would have first drawn the character. Um, just before, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. But just be, before we, we finish up, Dan, is there is there anything else besides the, the book coming out in November, the 30th anniversary special that you'd like to talk about or any any, any other projects coming up that you'd like to talk to the listeners about? Uh, yeah, there's uh, also coming out in November is a new Tarzan series I'm writing for Dynamite called, you know, Lord of the Jungle. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. And it kind of gets me back to working with yet another really classic character that I've not worked with before. 
Um, so having a great amount of fun with that. We have some awesome cover artists rotating through awesome art inside. And that actually ships the same week as uh, the Death of Superman special. And then next week at uh, New York Comic Con, we will be announcing a new project uh, that I'll be working on at DC that people I think are going to get pretty jazzed about, uh, including the people who who listen to this. So just stay tuned for about a week from today. Yeah. It, it tires on me and Rob are huge fans of those old kind of uh, strip characters, the Phantom, uh, uh, Mandrake, the Magician, all those guys, the Shadow, uh, you know, it's uh, that, that, that'll be great. Oh, that'll yeah. Be, that'll be yeah. great. I hadn't heard anything yeah, about that. I am too. Yeah, that comes out the exact same week. Dynamite Comics. Um, uh, the book is being drawn by Benito Gallego, who has been doing a lot of the Tarzan stuff that they publish online yes. and in foreign markets. So he's definitely into the character. And uh, we have a series of wonderful cover artists like Dan Pinosian, uh, who's doing a cover every month. Lee Weeks, who did a wonderful cover, you know, for our first issue, things like that. And yeah, that's the same week as the Death of Special. Dan, thank you so much for coming back on uh, All Star Super uh, Fan Podcast. It's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You guys have a wonderful show and ask some wonderful questions. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, we, we just give our socials before we go, Rob? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can... Uh, I always forget them when you put me on the phone. <laughs> uh, you, you can like us on Facebook at All Star Super Fan. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at All Star Super Pod. Don't forget to send us an, an email at allstarsuperpod at gmail.com. Uh, and please let us know your thoughts and feelings on everything we've discussed on tonight's show. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Dan, thank you again. It's been an absolute pre- uh, an absolute pleasure. Everybody, take care. Stay safe. Stay super. Bye-bye.